Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Paula Desplatz from University of California in San Diego on this show. Paula, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You received your PhD from the University of Mar del Plata, Argentina. You then moved to do on to do a postdoctoral at the Scripps Research Institute, working, working on Huntington's disease, and then joined the laboratory of Dr. Eliza Maslia at the UCSD. You then became a faculty member of the Department of Neuroscience in 2009 and joined the Department of Pathology in 2016. And you are basically still there today. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Okay. First, thank you very much for the invitation. Very happy to be here uh, sharing this story. You know, your question, it, it, it's quite nice. And I don't know if I ever thought back how I ended here, but I think I was always curious, loving animals, nature, and kind of curious about the processes. So um been always trying to learn and read. And by the end of elementary school, I knew that I wanted to pursue something like biology. Um, so I continued that path and that idea uh, through high school. My dad worked in a biology research institute in Mar del Plata. He was not a scientist, but I had the opportunity to go visit, just kind of see the labs. And, and as I grew up and, and, and during my junior year in, in high school, I had the opportunity to talk with this great scientist and mentor, Dr. Christensen, and, and I was trying to see how the career is and how the work is. And I was convinced that I wanted to do marine biology at that time. And, and after talking to him, he told me, I think what you want is doing biochemistry. And I was quite shocked because for me, biochemistry was more like a clinical. I see why I want to do that. And sure enough, he was totally right. It took uh, about three semesters in my career and doing three chemistries until biochemistry two, which was advanced. But I really understand that I wanted molecular biology and that type of research. So I took that path uh, immediately in my career and even went to Buenos Aires to take specialized classes in molecular biology and, and genetics. So that's how I started. Um, but in Mara Plata, there was not neuroscience. And I did my PhD as molecular as I could. So I was working with cyanobacteria, photosynthetic bacteria, but again, working, trying to unravel gene regulation. And I, well, it comes the time to look for a postdoc. And I was definitely decided to do a stay abroad and really broaden and, and improving my, my, my skills. But he wanted to do something more related now with human health. And it was even turning whether I'd go to microbiology or really neuroscience that was really fascinating for me. So I had this amazing opportunity with my first mentor, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Thomas at the Scripps Research, that she was okay with me not coming from neuroscience and knowing that my background was kind of fitting what she wanted to do for that project. So she gave me this amazing opportunity to transition to neuroscience. So all the neuroscience career I did, I did here. Um, and I started with Huntington's disease and then I moved here to broaden to 
Parkinson's and, and, and Alzheimer's. And, you know, it, it, if I go back and I tell something to myself many years ago, I think the career path for me could have been an MD, PhD, because I really like the translational. That's not an option in Argentina, though. So one thing that this department gave me is this close connection with physicians and neurologists and the potential of really translating our science. And that's really the focus of the lab. So, yeah, from the but in biology, here we are. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's talk about the focus of your lab and uh, the work you did. Um, as you already mentioned, it's about Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, circadian clock in Alzheimer's disease and all the epigenetics around it. Um, I want to start with a paper from the year 2011. Uh, there you looked at DNMT1 and how its sequestration from the nucleus alters the epigenome. Um, so what did you do in this study and what did you then ultimately find? That's the paper that started it all, I will say. And, and you know, we, we came at that moment from just discovering this interneuronal propagation of alpha synuclein Parkinson's, which was a huge thing. And, and the PNA's paper has, you know, how many thousands of citations that really moved the, the, the field forward. But there was a moment that I needed to start branching out. And that was really the signature of my mentor's lab. So um, in the quest for something and adapting, I epigenetic was emerging at that time. And um, I became very interested in these mechanisms because again, I was trying to focus in regulation of gene expression that comes perturbed and can contribute to neurodegeneration in different models. So this idea of DNA methylation starts coming, new technologies. Um, and if you did a PubMed search with neurodegeneration and DNA methylation, only five papers will come up. So it was just started to understand what DNA methylation has to do with the brain. So I sit with my mentor and say, well, I would like to see if there is something. So we started with this Parkinson's and, and dementia with Lewy body. So we did both. We have a cellular models and have these lentivirus where you can ex overexpress the protein. So we are express alpha-synuclein in the cellular model, alpha-synuclein aggregates. And then when we do a Western blood for West for, for DNMT, and I pick the NMT one because it's the one that persists in adulthood, right? And 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 most of what we know of epigenetics or at that point was more related to embryogenesis and development. It kind of was a big question why a post-mitotic neuron needs changes in methylation. It was considered something that is super stable. One is placed there, it stays there. So this DNMT1, the DNA methyl transferase one, was the one that is abundant in the brain in adult neurons. So it's okay, maybe something needs there is a function for this. And immediately when we see aggregation, these cells show that DMT will be kind of hatching the cytoplasm that will be less DMT1 in the nucleus. So we started going into different models. We did the animal models of Parkinson's disease, and we have the opportunity to do it also in human brains. And once again, we see this displacement of these fundamental methylation enzyme in the cytoplasm. So the obvious first consequence is that it has an impact in global methylation. And we found that. We found that there is a global decrease in 5MC, so there is less methylation. We pick a few genes just to do really targeted methylation analysis. And everything started getting together. And, and the question here was, is this a consequence of aggregation? And indeed, if we 
overexpress another family member, beta synuclein, the same protein, just missing the NAC domain that makes the protein to aggregate, nothing happens. The NMT won't pull, would pull from the site, from the nucleus. So we really pulled down, we saw that there is an interaction between aggregating alpha synuclein and the NMT1, and that's what keeps them. So if you then overexpress these in the brains of animals, you can recover the levels of methylation and kind of normalize these global methylation profile. So um, it was quite important because it was very striking in all the models that we used that we found this regulation and maybe the first mechanistic insight that something was uh, really wrong with DNA methylation in Parkinson's and that obviously will have a major impact in the genome. So uh, going back to the first thing you said uh, on this, um, you said there were only five papers on PubMed on, 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 on methylation and on, on, on those neurodegenerative diseases. So this was kind of the classical high-risk, high-reward project, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> totally. So, so uh, this is when really being in a lab where you have this opportunity as a mentor and that your mentor is decided to best in you and, and to support this first step, right? So I was able to jump into this. And then since having this data, I was able to get my first grants. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's that big jump of looking at something. And, and we started very small and say, okay, this will be a go, no go. Maybe there is nothing. Maybe I cannot profile anything else, but it was there. Usually this is a question I ask at the very end of the podcast, but but it fits so good now. So did you have a kind of a like a, a, a point of no return, right? So if you say, well, I'm, I'm trying this for like one year or one and a half years, and if I have no data, if I have no results, then I have to move on and do something else? Or, or how did you handle that? So, so you know, um, I don't know if I've ever hit that point of no return, but definitely needed to take a different path. And and one of the, the things is, you know, I'm fascinated by the brain because of the complexity, right? But the beauty is the curse also, because if, especially for epigenetics, right? Most of what we do in neuroepigenetics comes from cancer, because cancer is indeed an epigenetic disease. And the changes are always so striking, right? So if you were there, you can take just a piece of tumor, then the adjacent non-tumor cells is the same tissue. Then you go to the brain and touch the brain here, and the adjacent tissue is a completely different thing with a very uh, different mix of cells, these cells that are hyper-specialized in, in different functions. So that complexity usually is the problem. The brain also doesn't have the same reaction to changes in gene expression and, and methylation. So that eightfold thing, that doesn't happen in the brain. So you are working usually with kind of a noisy environment in terms of signal. So sometimes what happened is like, we cannot resolve this. The signal is low and I really don't know where it comes from. So it took changing models. It took changing questions. It took kind of trying to understand okay, how we can approach these. And in the meantime, technology developed, right? Now, from the very beginning, we were doing bulk, and now we are doing single cell ataxy. <laughs> so uh, those things come as potential things to solve those initial questions. And, and yeah, at some point, uh, we did have a, a study, and, and, and we could see signal, and we could see changes in, in many epigenetic modifiers, but and, and those were different in 
alpha-synuclein based diseases, Parkinson's disease, dementia with Lewy bodies, than Alzheimer's disease that will have amyloid beta and tau. But we really couldn't get to the point of defining the changes clearly. So that's sleeping there for the moment that we can have a, a higher resolution, right? So, so we kind of took what we knew and, and kind of applied to the DNA methylation biomarkers and more recently towards the mechanisms in Alzheimer's for CK and biology. Yeah, let's move on. In, in the in the uh, uh, yeah, path of your career, you then uh, started to uh, or started your own lab uh, with your own money, and you continued to focus on DNA methylation in neurodegenerative diseases, and invested like the genome-wide DNA methylation in brain and blood samples from Parkinson's uh, disease patients. Um, can you mm -hmm. talk about uh, what you did there and what you find? Yes. So, so that's. That was the next step, right? So after we found these changes in the MT1 and these potential changes in global methylation, we wanted to see, okay, where is in the genome? What, what happens and what's the specific consequence of this? So we started using the, at that point, it was the 450K array from Illumina, 450,000 uh, spots in the genome. And, and we, the idea was, these could be potentially a source of biomarkers. And You know, when we work in these diseases, both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and, and kind of the spectrum of adult neurodegeneration, there is what we call the prodromal phase or a silent phase. That is really the, a huge problem because there are no signs. It's actually clinically mostly silent. And, but there are a lot of things are happening, especially neuronal decay is happening. So when a Parkinson's patient come to a neurologist with a complaint of tremor that is just pronounced, 70% of the dopaminergic neurons are lost. When an Alzheimer's patient have a memory deficit, the disease is ongoing, there is plaques, and it's starting in a point of uh, really progressing. So despite the super good news this week or yesterday of another drug, of an Alzheimer's disease that is being effective, really is very hard to target the aggregates. And we are not good at replacing neurons yet. So what we need to do is come early. And really that's the point of intervention where we will find therapeutic alternatives that are potentially life-changing. So how we identify that a patient is starting this process? Because of course we cannot do a biopsy in the brain. So we need biomarkers, we need non-invasive biomarkers, right? And I have been always trying to steer even out of the CSF and the lumbar puncture. So these presented as a potential, again, another high-risk thing. Can we see something in the blood? Will that blood make some sense of what's happening in the brain? So we have this very tiny pilot with a few patients that we have brain and blood. And um, that was also um, a starting point um, of, of this idea of profiling together. And, and what we found is that, yes, there are changes in both. There are changes in Parkinson's disease. But we found a set of probes that really show similar trends in blood than in breath. So at that point, it was a lot of questions of why. What, what does it mean? And I guess the why, I don't know why. I don't know why the same changes happen. We can hypothesize a few things. Blood also has, for example, dopaminergic system and signaling. So this Alzheimer's disease also starts systemically. So it might be mirroring and similar processes might be happening. 
But beyond the why, I think it was very interesting now and saying, hey, okay, there is something in the blood. We can try to take this route and really focusing whether these are biomarkers. So um, based on that, I started a, a journey with the Michael J. Fox Foundation, uh, which I'm very grateful for. It had been continuous funding from them for multiple years. And again, that foundation has a different approach to funding and they will fund high risk, high pay. And if they see that there is potential. So we started a, a follow-up study, which is 50, 50 patients, 50 controls, and we did genome-wide methylation. And once again, we start finding signals that were very specific for Parkinson's. So um, based on that, we move into doing the first longitudinal study for Parkinson's because then the question was, okay, we see these changes. When do these changes happen? Can we see the change happen? So um, there were really known longitudinal studies of methylation. So we um, partner with um, Travis Zankley in Arizona and with uh, Clement Schwarzer, who's the director of the Harvard Biomarker Study and have a beautiful collection of samples. So we started our first longitudinal endeavor. And I think we profiled close to 190. 90 or 200 patients and control uh, healthy uh, adults. And we have two time points for that. And indeed, we saw changes in methylation, that is a, a, a change in the rate of methylation in some crops that was quite significant. And what we found that is very interesting was a question that I have from the mechanisms from before is that the dopaminergic replacement therapy modulates also or has an impact in DNA methylation in the blood. And, and the, the level dopa and the medicines that are kind of intended to replace dopamine in the brain are synthesized in a way that should not be cleaved in the blood. So they reach the brain and they can be metabolized. But the, the actual metabolism of dopamine touches directly the one carbon cycle that is the donor of methyl groups to DNA. So I, and, and there is a phenomenon in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's Patients accumulate homocysteine that is a byproduct of this metabolism. Homocysteine is an inhibitor of DNA methyltransferases. So I always have this question, if, is that doing something? And indeed, it was a very imperfect collection because we didn't have a, a complete detail of the medication of these patients, but we kind of clustered those that were taking Levodopa for some time. And we saw that that kind of normalize in certain way methylation. So that also opens this idea that, okay, maybe also we can just understand what's going on with medication. So then fast forward, um, Michael J. Fox Foundation invited then us to profile the methylome of their collection, which is called the Parkinson Progression Market Initiative, which is a huge collection. So we had the opportunity to profile more than 2,000 samples, and these are healthy controls, Parkinson's patients, we see the hepatic Parkinson's, the first study on genetic Parkinson's due to LARC-AK2 mutation, which is one of the most prevalent. Also genetic careers that have the mutation, but they don't have Parkinson's disease. And what we call the normal patients that are just being, have some prodromal features um, like non-REM sleep disorder and anosmia. And, they are starting to convert into Parkinson's, but yet not taking medications. And we have four time points for each of them. So that's a huge data set that we are analyzing and, and hope to 
soon share with the community at large. Um, and same thing, right? Seeing these changes in methylation, how that progresses with disease. So I have one question that I have kept back now for 10 minutes. <laughs> so um, um, those neurodegenerative diseases, they are also a disease of aging, right? So they are more mm -hmm. common when you age. And there are also methylation-related changes when you age, mm -hmm. right? So how mm -hmm. can you discriminate the methylation that is happening with aging and that is happening in those neurodegenerative diseases? Are these different loci or are yeah. you just... Uh, measuring like genome-wide levels? So that, that's an excellent question. And in fact, it's kind of also the motivation, right? We have these two things moving, aging that is moving the entire epigenetic drift, as we call it. But then we have disease intersection that is doing other things to methylation. So the way we approach this, the first thing is like we have a very controlled cohort. So we have age match individuals for the control, right? So you are compared mm -hmm. both. But when we do this longitudinal analysis, we do intersecting models in where we test the intersection with age and the intersection with disease. So everything that is significant just because age, we remove them and we only filter those things that only change because of the disease status. So you do kind of a mathematical approach to that. Uh, and we have that, and we always say, well, we should come back to this because it's interesting. And, and maybe if, I, if we have time, I can just look in these from the circadian biology that we are trying to come to that question too. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so these are very distinct things that are maybe in the way. But what is interesting is that we are also applying what is called the epigenetic clock metrics, right? So there are this group of probes in these arrays that really define this epigenetic agent. And this, this algorithm is so perfect that can highly predict the age, the biological age of an individual. So is then the epigenetic profile differs, you can calculate like an acceleration of aging. And some diseases are associated with this, HIV, um, cancer, and Alzheimer's potentially. So um, we started looking at those and, and, and really it's not that clear even Parkinson, we see this inclination, but we recently um, also started to parse this ventilation data in a sub-cohort of the BPMI. And, and, and the idea here is cognitive deterioration. So 70% of Parkinson patients will develop dementia 10 years down the road. You have kind of a tenfold increased risk for dementia once you have Parkinson. But there is no way to tell from the get going who will develop dementia. And that's also a very important knowledge, how you treat them, especially now. Now, if we are improving with treatments, can you cross treatments from others, but also to get ready? The family needs to know. So we started looking at methylation and we found some differences and also based on our study on methylation in Parkinson's disease dementia. So we find some signals that are more specifically associated with cognitive decline. And interestingly enough, then we subset now that we have this huge cohort of samples, we kind of start doing things that are more interesting, right? So we subset those patients that during these years remain cognitive stable versus the ones that start declining. And we then redid the comparison of methylation. And again, we found some probes and it's very interesting in all these signals that when we go and see what are the genes and what are the functions that are associated with these genes, even though we are profiling blood, we pick neuronal signals. Signals are neurotransmission. There are neurotransmitters. 
And if you project the upstream regulators, for many of them, is alpha-synuclein itself. So the signal is quite precise and specific. And now by applying these epigenetic aging models, we found that there are at least two metrics in the epigenetic aging that are different in the patients that develop cognitive decline. So we are very interested in those. We want to really refine these metrics, see first from the biomarker perspective, whether they have predicted value, um, how specific um, they are. But of course, the biology comes, right? So what are those substrates? What's happening with that methylation change and, and how that relates to actually cognitive function, right? So, so yeah, that's an interesting intersection that we are studying. Mm. You just mentioned it. Um, you also looked at circadian alterations during the early stages of Alzheimer's disease and how obviously epigenetics is involved. <laughs> so which epigenetic changes did you find and what were the results? Yeah, so, so that, that's a, pressure, a, a project that has been growing a lot in the lab and, and we treasured. And, and I think one thing of, I like, and, and going back to the beginning, was the serendipity of how we arrived to circadian biology. So we, similar to all these findings we did in Parkinson's, we wanted to look in Alzheimer's, more in mechanisms. And the question for us at that moment was, neuroinflammation is a very important uh, pathological pathway um, that is usually precedes, but there are kind of conflicting views in the field, whether it's a starting or, or, or it's a result of the disease. Right? So we wanted to understand how methylation contributes to inflammation, to trigger inflammation. Do you need changes in DNA methylation? Are those associated with now these pro-inflammatory genes being overexpressed in how that, that alters microglia? So we took again this longitudinal, not longitudinal, but this approach to disease progression. And again, since these are post-mortem brains, we took patients that, um, remain cognitively stable and healthy. Those that have kind of the earliest stages of disease or mild cognitive impairment, but has some pathology. And then the mental patients with really advanced pathology. We did, again, with the same array, genome-wide methylation, starting doing the analysis and indeed found some changes in methylation in innate immune genes and, and inflammation genes. But Beyond that, of course, we say, okay, let's see what else came out, right? So completely unbiased um, analysis of genes. And we started to notice, oh, this gene is circadian clock. Oh, this also, this also. And we found at least seven genes that had different profiling methylation that were associated with the core clock. So became very curious about this because... It was really hard to understand why. And again, this concept of DNA methylation being stable, how you put together a stable epigenetic modification with the system that is more dynamic in the cell, this beautiful clock that every 24 hours resets itself and it starts over, right? So we started also, the other thing is, again, you are trying to measure something that's super dynamic, changing in hours, from the postmortem tissue, nothing more static than the postmortem tissue, right? So we started to find ways, okay, how can we do this? And we found a couple of great papers where they show that you can use time of death as a proxy for time of day. So we went back to the records and we collected as much information as, as we could 
And sure enough, we did also RNA uh, qPCR to see the the change in the expression of these genes, and you can reconstruct the cycling by having the time of the, of the individual. Like that's a stamp and that's a stop. So um, that was fascinating. So now that we were sure that we could see that in BMO1, which is the positive arm of the clock, we went back to methylation and redid the analysis. And now we incorporated the time of that for these individuals and replotted, and we started seeing cycling. And we found that around the BMO5 UTR region, there were differences in gene expression, in, in sorry, in methylation. And so what we usually will see as a single point, now we can see that it was moving along today. But the important thing is like, Alzheimer's patients in some cases have completely antiphasic DNA methylation waves. So it will be completely methylated when in the controls was unmethylated. And most interestingly, even is that the earliest stages have the same or even worse the regulation in methylation. So that was very encouraging because they okay, we're picking something that comes early in disease and that we wouldn't have seen. So, you know, it it was also tricky to come up with this because it, who will believe this? <laughs> so we kept kind of finding ways and really being sure of what we were seeing. And at that point, the religious order study and the um, memory aging project, which are the largest aging cohorts in the country uh, run by the University of Chicago. Um, so they have a huge collection of samples, but also they have a beautiful cohort that's followed for more than 25 years. And they did a very large study of methylation for Alzheimer's, more than 700 brains, and 500 of them also with RNA-seq. And beyond what they publish as DNA methylation, they have this paper showing that, saying that they see waves of DNA methylation at certain parts of the genome. Say, okay, someone else is seeing this. So we started collaboration, um, and that was fantastic. We still began Phil De Yeager and um, Andrew Lim. And what we did is we had only 70 brains. They have 500. So we kind of apply the same criteria for selection, and we did the reanalysis of that, and we validated our findings. So we found these changes in BMO1. So then we um, were lucky enough that in UCSD, we have the Center for Circadian Biology, which is an amazing center, really top-notch scientists, and also the most collaborative people I met, which really embraced me because they come here for the neuroscience saying, hey, I'm seeing this, and I don't know what it means. And they really embraced me, and, and I learned so much and forged new collaborations. And we start measuring the circadian cycles in fibroblasts from Alzheimer's patients. We found the regulations of that too. And, and then the whole story became reality, right? And why is this significant? Because 80% of Alzheimer's patients suffer from circadian impairment. And in the clinic, it's a reversal of the sleep-wake cycle. And also a particular behavioral agitation in the evening. These patients become more agitated and confused and not recognizing people and their places. And they can be staying up for long hours and kind of very active. Those two points are the major reasons why sometimes a family cannot continue caring for the patient. And that's when an individual is transitioned to a nursing home. 
if you think that the circadian clock is a system that connects us with the environment, it's a system that is very responsive to the environment too. So the beauty of this for me from the translational perspective is that you can interact with the clock in different ways. And you can find those ways not taking 10 years of developing a drug in the beginning. And if you can impact those, if you can give a few more years of that life with a family, that's a huge conquer while we keep working and really curing the disease, right? So I think that was a fascination. And, and we uh, got another one for this. And we the first thing we decided to do is, okay, we need to understand what's the clock doing in Alzheimer's. And, and again, um, this was considered to be a late event in the disease. And we were seeing in other labs that this happens early. So what we did recently, so we take a very large cohort of an animal model of AD, and we sampled every six hours to reproduce the entire day. And we did RNA-seq, ATAC-seq, and DNA methylation just to define a multi-omic regulation. And we are working on the data yet, but uh, we found beautiful rhythms of gene expression in the hippocampus and the cortex. We have a lot of the regulation in the Alzheimer's model. And this is really pre-plugged. And still, you can see how these genes start changing their patterns. And when you do gene ontology analysis, these genes are connected with protein folding, specifically with many metabolic pathways and pathways of inflammation that are fundamental and autophagy for the disease. So um, we are yet facing the, the complexity of analyzing DNA methylation with time points. Um, what we just recently implemented also is a spatial transcriptomics, which I believe is the first doing time points. So now we can see that from the entire brain perspective. So not only hippocampus and cortex, we can now see all the structures, how they are changing in the gene expression. And the thing that we did more recently is, okay, now we know that this system is broken. Can we do something to fix it? And we did this intervention uh, using what is kind of in vogue now, the time-restricted feeding, which is kind of a prolonged fasting. And it's a very strong trainer of the clock. And, and, and I mean, there are, see... there are, sorry to interrupt, but there is like day of light, right? When you start seeing the first light of day as a potent yeah. modulator of the circadian rhythm. Yes. And then the other big yes. thing is, is obviously feeding and when you take exactly. in your meals. Exactly. And, and that, that's a very strong uh, stimulus. So uh, really we see how that strengthened the circadian rhythmicity, but had a very positive impact in the pathology so we are very excited with that hopefully those results will be out soon um yeah, it's on bioarchive already right it's in, yes it is in bioarchive already uh, hopefully it will be in a journal soon <laughs> and, so uh, when when is it important to not eat is it in the morning or in the afternoon or in no the evening? in fact this model and and this is interesting right because um we really apply something that we want to be translational and and if you think that we potentially could be working with cognitively impaired people. Um, you need to make something that is easy. So the basis of this is prolong the night fasting. And that's something that we as society have abandoned because we have food and light 24-7, right? But the key here is like more than 48, 14 hours of fasting, it's kind of the really point. So if you stop eating, And the easiest way is doing it at night, right? Because if after dinner, if you get a dinner uh, kind of earlier, 
uh, in Europe and in Latin America, we don't do that. <laughs> so we struggle. <laughs> but if you can stop eating, let's say at 8 p.m. and you don't do a snacks, just follow your night, go to sleep. And then instead of having breakfast right the first thing in the morning, you spend a few hours more, even two hours. You cash 14 hours of fasting. And that has a lot of metabolic um, benefits. And, and we hope that those can be enough to also correct part of cognitive uh, impairment and potentially decrease inflammation. So it's really a translational project. We are very excited with that. And, and we are kind of now spinning off new projects based on all these findings, because you imagine we have this huge data set also. So we frequently go back and say, okay, what else? What else is here? So I think uh, so we can like, very best it. Yeah. So the, the challenge for the next five years will be going on long walks and coming up with new ideas to look at the old data? <laughs> yes, yes, maybe. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and I think, um, as I mentioned, I like how we ended here. And it was really the data telling us a story. So I hope that I keep telling us more stories that are important, right? But I think as 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 the film comes to this amazing granularity, the, the things that we can see now, the resolution of the molecular level is it, it, it's amazing, right? So we are learning more things in terms of function. So then we kind of relate things with our observations. So we have all these data that we can go back and ask new questions as the film moves. And and yeah, maybe hopefully even contributing, you know, to to all these changes. It, it, this moment is really potentially um, an inflection point if these drugs really keep performing and it might be a change in the way we clinically treat Alzheimer's. So this is a treatment at a certain point. By the way, the most benefits is kind of earlier than late, right? But hopefully with new things we can prevent coming to this point. Um, so so that's what is fascinating, I think. So in the last almost 40 minutes now we have taken a journey through your scientific <laughs> career. Can you maybe Give us a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview. Okay, so I think that the, the most important finding is, is kind of the realization of this different dimension of DNA methylation and how dynamic it is and how important it is in terms of neurodegeneration in the adult brain. So um, I think these is something that we need to pay close attention to define the programs and the changes in gene expression and potentially even serving as biomarkers, but as functional hubs, we really need to keep understanding and how this complexity also contributes to this hyper-functional specialization in the brain and, and this cluster. So I think um, we came very recently to realize the role of epigenetics in the brain and disease. And I think there are a lot of things that we didn't anticipate it, but this is a fundamental process that is not only involving development and needs to be very accurate and active during adulthood and aging. Yeah, thank you, Paula, for your time and for being on the show. <laughs> thank you very much for the invitation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode.
We'd love to hear from you. So please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.